Welcome to MIT Talks. I'm Vita Bilkis. And I'm Dana Attar. MIT Talks set out to bring you the stories that shape the people of MIT. And I'm Sarah Trice. As the co-host of MIT Talks, we go behind the scenes with some of the most influential members of the MIT community, past and present, to dig deeper into their unique and inspiring journeys. So tune in, listen, learn and grow. This is MIT Talks. There is a network of radio telescopes that is observing these distant ancient quasars. And one of the things you can see with this is the Earth actually slows down in its rotation and speeds up a little bit in its rotation from season to season and day to day. Hello, I'm Vita Bilkis, your host for today's episode of MIT Talks. Today's guest, Michael Hecht, is the Associate Director for Research Management at the MIT Haystack Observatory. And since 2013, he has been Principal Investigator for the MOXIE Oxygen ISRU Demonstration Experiment on NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance rover. In his previous position at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, Mike served as Principal Investigator and Instrument Manager for the Mecca Soil Analysis Suite on the Phoenix Mars mission. In addition to his Mars exploration activities, Michael served as Deputy Project Director for the Event Horizon Telescope Project and shared in the 2020 Breakthrough Prize for Fundamental Physics. On this episode, we dive into the incredible work happening at MIT's Haystack Observatory and its impact on space exploration. I know you will love this out-of-this-world chat. Welcome to the show, Michael. It's an exciting time to be talking with you this morning as we just saw the first images from the Webb telescope. And so this is, I think, very present in a lot of people's minds. Space exploration is hot from the headlines we see of SpaceX and Blue Origin and people like William Shatner reaching the upper limits of the atmosphere and going to space. So I know that this is going to be a fun chat we're going to have today. And so I thought maybe you could just start us off in our discussion today about sharing more about the MIT Haystack Observatory. Tell us about that. Uh, Thanks very much, Vita, and I would be happy to talk about Haystack. We are not primarily a spacefaring institution, although we're dabbling in space these days. And space is, as you say, always popular and always has been, and it's a very satisfying feel to have been working in for the last few decades of my career. Haystack Observatory is an institution on 1,300 acres of land up in Westford, Massachusetts. We're about an hour's drive north of the MIT main campus in reasonable traffic. And it was placed here back when we weren't surrounded by busy suburbs but the site was more or less pristine and farmland and in particular radio quiet. The site and the facility was established by Lincoln Laboratory well before Haystack Observatory existed as a distinct institution. And uh, large radio telescopes were built for anti-ballistic missile purposes, et cetera, but it quickly became apparent they were being used more for scientific research than to support Air Force activities. And so in 1970, following the Mansfield Act, MIT split off the observatory from Lincoln Lab 
and made it you know, we're a research uh, arm of MIT under the vice president for research office. We have a flourishing program here, still working side by side with our Lincoln Lab colleagues with a lot of shared facilities. Uh, we have about 80 people on staff that are part of the Haystack program. Wow. And we are anchored by major programs in astronomy, which we'll talk about, in atmospheric or geospace sciences, which encompasses everything from you know, the heliosphere to uh, the ionosphere and stratosphere, everything in the upper atmosphere. And radio waves are a key part of that, using both GPS techniques, which people are familiar with, oh, yeah. and incoherent scattering radar methods, uh, which is where our biggest telescopes here are employed. And we also have a program in geodesy, which uh, has to do with uh, understanding the changing shape and rotation and motion of the Earth itself. Wow. All three of them are very exciting kind of anchor programs. And more recently, our, our smaller program and growing program in the space sector, uh, which includes the, the MOXIE experiment that I lead on the Mars 2020 Perseverance mission. Yes, and we look for. I look forward to talking to you more about that coming up here in our dialogue because I know that's really fascinating work you're doing. And just just to ask, can people visit the observatory, or how does that work, and what would they see if they do visit? One of the interesting aspects of working so closely with Lincoln Lab is, of course, there are they're a secure institution. They're an Air Force uh, institution run by MIT, and we are a totally open campus as part of the MIT community. And we maintain that tension successfully. Uh, the Lincoln Lab facilities have their own, if you will, perimeter security, and everything else is wide open and people are welcome to visit. But I recommend focusing those visits on our open houses, uh, which we haven't done in the last couple of years for obvious yeah. reasons, but we hope to resume soon in person. And we do that a couple of times a year. Oh, and cool. welcome the community to come visit us when we're prepared for it. But we can always, we have tourists all the time, and we can always welcome groups of visitors. That's great. Okay. Well, it's a place I'm going to check out next time. Yes. Uh, I have a afternoon, a free afternoon. So tell me, how did you come to MIT and this role of Associate Director of the Observatory? It's an interesting journey. I was last at MIT. I, I uh, was in a PhD program. But I left with a master's, and I was uh, working under a young um, assistant professor by the name of uh, Jeff Hoffman at the time, and got a took a master's in astrophysics and went on to uh, do other things in solid state physics at Stanford. That's where I got my PhD, and then then somewhat oddly and due to circumstance, ended up doing material science and surface uh, surface science at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory which uh, eventually drew me back into the space field. That's okay. what they do. And the planetary science field, in fact. Uh, uh, and I ended up leading an instrument on, a Mar on the Phoenix Mars mission and working most of my 30-year career at JPL in planetary science. What brought me back? Well, ultim event <laughs> ultimately, it was just time to come home. You know, the Boston area is home. Our kids were grown. Our kids had moved out here. Um, yeah, and it wasn't even home for them, but it was like a second home for them. And it was just time. It was a good time for my wife and I to relocate. And I 
found an, a wonderful, almost serendipitous match with a position that they were trying to fill here at Haystack, where because the nature of our Haystack projects was getting larger and more international and more sort of project-oriented, they were looking for someone who had experience with large you know, multinational projects like space missions. <laughs> so amazing. it was a very good fit, even though I had not done astrophysics for many, many years, and I really had never done much radio science at all. And we are a radio science observatory. But in other respects, it was a very good fit. And I was very happy to come home and come back to MIT after all these years. I mentioned Jeff Hoffman because he had gone, in some ways, an analogous but far more exciting route. He had left MIT and become an astronaut. Oh, wow. Flew on the shuttle five times, was involved in the first Hubble repair. And he came back to MIT a few years before I did in the role of professor of the practice in the AeroAstro department. So after all the, the 30 or wow. 35 years, we had opportunity to, to get to know each other again. And we How ended up fun. proposing together the MOXIE experiment uh, for wow. the the, Mar the Perseverance mission because it involves my experience with sending stuff to Mars and Jeff's experience with human with human spaceflight, first-hand experience with right. human spaceflight, which is really the objective of the MOXIE mission, as we'll talk about later. So that's that's my full circle. Well, no, let's dive into that. Tell us, enough waiting, tell us about this amazing project uh, that is called MOXIE. From what I researched a little bit, you are basically trying to make Mars habitable for, <laughs> for humans. And, <laughs> and how do you make an unhabitable planet habitable with converting the environment to oxygen, right? Something like this, something real sci-fi. I mean, you couldn't get more sci-fi than this. So tell us more about this amazing amazing project. You know, you're right, Vita. It's it's sci-fi. We often forget that what we're doing is sci-fi until you step back for a moment and say, my God, how did I get so fortunate to be in the right places at the right time to do these extraordinary things? And it is extraordinary. It's not quite as ambitious as you described. We're not trying to change Mars. We're trying to get to Mars. We're trying to get people to Mars. We're trying to get a crew to Mars. And we're trying to do it in a way that's not going to totally break the bank and that's not going to take decades to accomplish wow. and that's not going to be incredibly complex and risky. Is that even possible when you're talking about getting to Mars? I'm not sure, but <laughs> if anybody can do it, you guys at MIT and gals can do it, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, Jeff sometimes reminds reminds me of what it's like to sit on top of a rocket and being launched into space on uh, uh, <laughs> on top of all this enormous explosive power going off all at once. Uh, space is dangerous. Without question, space is dangerous. So everything I say, please take as a relative measure. There is There are more or less complicated and more or less safe ways to do it. And there's certainly more or less expensive ways to do it. There are many things you need to take with you to Mars to support a human crew. You need a habitat. You need a large power plant, 25 kilowatts or so. Compare that with what we take to Mars now, we take maybe 100 watts. Okay, that's what's on Perseverance rover, 110 wow. watts. Okay. We'll need 25,000 watts or so for a human crew. 
different scale. So a habitat, a power plant, a, a way to get around rovers, maybe pressurized rovers, maybe not, and then a lot of supplies. And the idea has, has generally been in the past, you put these things in place first. We get one chance every 26 months when the planets align properly to launch missions to Mars. That's why you often, now that there are many, you know, the multiple countries involved in going to Mars, you see everybody leaves within a couple of weeks of each other. That's, That's when the planets align. So the idea is you use you use one such opportunity to send all the stuff, the, to, to establish a base on Mars. And then the next opportunity, 26 months later, you send the crew, you send our kids, whenever it is. And it turns out the single biggest thing you need to send isn't the power plant, it isn't the habitat, it isn't the rovers, it's a big, dumb tank of oxygen. Wow. And the, and that's maybe 25 to 30 tons, probably closer to 30 tons of oxygen. The reason you need that isn't quite what you'd think. The astronauts themselves, a crew of four, four to six, will need one and a half, two tons. And if it was just that, you would just take it. The real hungry consumer of oxygen turns out to be the rocket that will take the crew off the surface when their mission is over. Ah, and rockets okay. breathe a lot more oxygen than astronauts do. <laughs> a lot more. And they do it very rapidly. So if we're going to do this round trip successfully, which is just about everyone's intention, then we need to either bring 30 tons of oxygen, or we need to make it there. And that's what MOXIE is about, is making it there. That sounds crazy and audacious, but in fact, there is an atmosphere on Mars. It's thin. It's about 1%, half a percent maybe of the uh, amount of the density of the air on Earth. And it's almost entirely carbon dioxide. Now we know from, I'm looking out the window at beautiful green trees where we have this, you know, this wonderful green campus, 1,300 acres with hiking trails and trees over most of it. And I'm looking out at that, and all those trees are busy turning carbon dioxide into oxygen. Okay, we know it can be done. And it can be done with a machine, and MOXIE is such a machine. Can you do it on another planet remotely, autonomously, robotically? Well, <laughs> anything you try to do under those circumstances is very difficult. Obviously, if you're going to trust that technology to ensure the safety and the safe return of the first astronauts on Mars, you want to be particularly vigilant about making sure it will work. And in this case, the decision was try it out on Mars. Even if it's small scale, even if it's running on a 100-watt power plant, try it out on Mars. And that's what MOXIE is for. It's where MOXIE is literally making oxygen out of thin air. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> And that amazing. thin air is entirely carbon dioxide. Wow. So how long has this project been going? I'm trying to remember when we actually when we actually started. It was <laughs> it was it seemed long enough ago. I came to I came to MIT in 2012 and I think by 2014 or so we were already getting going on Moxie. I'll have to double check that. Yeah. And how about, is, are these with partners and, and you know, government-sponsored uh, programs? Or are they truly, in, you know, your, 
your own project or how does that work? And, and are there collaborations behind the scenes or? Yeah, it's, it, this, there's a very interesting relationship with NASA. Okay. An unusual relationship even for NASA. That's because what we're doing is sponsored, commissioned, if you will, by the part of NASA that does human spaceflight. Okay. And that's an organization with the acronym H-E-O-M-D, uh, uh, but it's the Human Exploration uh, Office uh, of NASA, and also by the Space Technology Office or Mission Directorate. The Perseverance mission is run out of the Science Office, the Science Directorate. You know, they have very, very different jobs. And while it's not that they don't get along, they don't have too much occasion to work together. And so this is one of the occasions where it was necessary to work together to establish a, uh, to meet a goal in human exploration. And uh, the science directorate is always, you know, eager to show right. its, its relevance to human exploration. So we ended up being sponsored by three different NASA directorates wow. all at once. That's which awesome. Never happens. I, I've been told by people at NASA, this just never happens. And it's been... It's worked. I mean, there's been a lot of juggling and bouncing around and, and interacting with different different offices and different people, but it's worked. And I think that says a great deal about NASA's commitment to make this work. Now, as for the experiment itself, that's what you were asking about. Because of that strange arrangement, instead of doing what the science office does and says, and, and which is to describe the general goals of a mission and the general you know, physical restraints of the rover, in this case, that's carrying the instruments, they say, now propose instruments, propose whatever you want to do, the science we're trying to accomplish. In this case, for this one case, the human exploration office said, no, we, we only want one thing here. We want a machine to produce oxygen from carbon dioxide. And you can propose different variations of this. We recommend the following technology that has been researched within NASA for a long time. Okay. But uh, it was almost more like putting it out to bid rather than the usual open proposal type process, even though it came through the normal proposal mechanism. So that was a very interesting challenge. The other part of the answer is that is is what is MIT's role? And this actually came about through interactions with my you know, former colleagues at the Jet Propulsion Lab. And they were eager to bid on this, even though it was really a stretch for them. You know, they have typically, as a, as a um, laboratory, not engaged much at all with human exploration. But they felt this was a, um, this is something that fell in between. And it was a technology they knew something about. So they approached us for collaboration. And as often happens with the NASA laboratories, they're looking for science leadership, they're looking for a PI and a science team, and they want to do a lot of the system, you know, the, the system and mission integration work. So that was the arrangement in this case. MIT was not directly involved in fabricating anything. The uh, JPL took the lead on this. We were coordinating, defining requirements, doing what a science team typically does on a Mars mission. We contract contract for the instrument and uh, specify it and do requirements and monitor it as it goes along and then take over when it's delivered. This was an unusual case because it was just all there was no precedent for it whatsoever. 
There were key partners. Uh, JPL didn't have expertise in the specific technologies needed either. So the key partner that we engaged with was a company called Ceramitech at the time. And I say at the time because Ceramitech was part of a big corporate empire um, that traces back to the Coors Corporation as in the beer. Wow. Um, interesting. They were part of what's called Coors Tech. And that division within within Coors Tech since was dissolved and the people we worked with formed their own small company now called Oxion Energy. So at the time we worked with Ceramitech, now we work with the same folks as a small business in Oxion Energy. And they built the actual device that turns the CO2 into oxygen using a kind of a fuel cell technology. It's called solid oxide electrolysis. Uh, another major part of this is a sort of everyday device, a compressor, you know, a pump, to collect that thin air and compress it and feed it into this instrument. And that's not glamorous, but it's equally challenging. And as I said, doing anything from Mars is challenging. A company by the name of Air Squared took that one on. And neither one of these two companies had ever done anything for space before. Wow. So there was a wonderful, op wonderful opportunity to work with them and both JP JPL to share their experience, me to share my experience uh, working with these companies. And they were, it was a resounding success on both, on both fronts. Amazing. So as usual on these missions, made a lot of new friends and enjoyed working with a lot of partners. We have university and international partners on the science team working uh, as well on the mission. It's been a joy. It's been yeah, a joy. A real collaboration between government and academia and private companies, you know, really for this, an amazing accomplishment that just started out as a small seed of an idea, right? Like it's, it's just fascinating to watch and such a, a successful collaboration. So in your best estimate, is this going to happen? Are we going, and by when do you think there will be a mission to Mars with astronauts, people? Well, these are two very William different Shatner, questions. But... <laughs> you know, back in 1996, maybe, I remember Dan Golden, who was you know, the head of NASA at the time, saying, we will be, we expect to land people on Mars as soon as 2011. Okay, so 15 years, 15 year horizon. When we started with MOXIE, they were saying also in 15 years, we hope to be able to land people on Mars. I think we're still hearing in 15, 15 years. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I was optimistic because there are two things that are really different now compared to those, you know, to 1996. Uh, one is the fact that NASA is investing serious money into MOXIE and other aspects of, uh, of preparing for this mission. And the other is the fact that NASA is not alone on this quest. Uh, there are other countries uh, that are sending missions to Mars, everyone from, you know, of course, the Europeans, the the United Arab Emirates, you know, many spacefaring countries interested in planetary science, China, India, lots of countries that that are that are engaged in this in this broader effort, and private organizations like SpaceX as well. So it's not just NASA, and there's real investment. So I said I was very optimistic. I'm a bit less optimistic now because of 
what was probably a very good decision. And the good decision was to return to the moon before return to Mars. It's disappointing for me personally. I understand why NASA is going that way. And it's really remarkable to see all the energy and creativity that's being put into this thrust toward getting back to the moon. But it probably has delayed the Mars adventure by 15 years. We'll see. That's my personal opinion. Okay. NASA would, yeah. would, would say it's going to help. I think it's a diversion, okay. but a very, a very happy one. Yeah. Good. So when are we going to go to Mars? Maybe in not sooner than I'd say the late 2030s. Okay. There you have it. That's a, a good prediction. And we'll we'll check back in, in the late 30s. So tell us, you know, growing up, um, did you were you always fascinated by space? Were you looking up to the stars and curious about it? Or how did you proceed in the study of all of this and share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I was a city kid, so there weren't a whole lot of stars to look up to. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Boston, actually, okay. and, and I shouldn't say that much city. I mean, when I lived in Dorchester till I was, you know, ten or so, and then moved out to Newton. So we were in the leafy suburbs for most of my formative years, but you know, still well lit, crowded, leafy suburbs. I was like almost every single one of my colleagues in this business. I was a science fiction nut. And I think that is how that is what draws so many of us to the field, just getting our imaginations kindled by the science fiction greats. I was always a kid who took things apart and put them together and wanted to know how everything worked. And I think that drove my commitment to science eventually more strongly than space did. I came to space somewhat late, but I really did always have this passion to figure out how things worked, but also this kind of fascination with looking at things differently, with being able to take a step back and saying, okay, this is this is the conventional wisdom. This is what everyone tells us. Maybe I was contrary. Yeah, but what if you look at look at it differently? Does things make more sense if you take a totally different perspective? Ever since I got in Mars, I always like to got involved in the Mars business, I've always liked to ask, you know, what would this look like if you were a Martian? You know, think like a Martian. Think like a Martian and think bring hey, a total know, different perspective, this? right? Yeah. Exactly. And I'm fascinated by that. That's amazing. I'm I'm gonna use that one myself when I have to tackle a difficult challenge. Think like a Martian. How would a Martian mm -hmm. approach this one? <laughs> I think it could work. As I mentioned, you know, space Imaging has been quite in the headlines and, and new images never captured before, partially due to advancements in technology, obviously, and capabilities. And I had seen on local news here in Massachusetts that the observatory was involved in capturing an image of the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, Sagittarius A star, right? I hope that's the way you, you say it. that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would love just to hear a little bit more about how the observatory was involved in that and capturing that historic image and, and why is why should we be captivated by it? Well, of course, you know the, the expression that success has many parents. And huh, we are certainly one of the primary parents of this one. When I first came to Haystack in 2012, this was the first large project 
I took on. And when I say I took on, there were the technique that was used to capture that image. And, and I think even more significantly, in 2019, in April, there was uh, the release of the first such image, which was of M87, the supermassive black hole in the middle of another galaxy that is, of course, much farther away than our own, but also a much larger black hole. So in terms of, you know, you, know, you can think about if you look at the moon and you look at the sun, and you know you hold a quarter at arm's length. All three of them are about the same size, and the quarter is very small and it's very nearby. Uh, the moon is quite a bit larger than the quarter, uh, but it's also compared to the sun relatively nearby, and all of them look about the same size. And this was the case with M87. It's much farther away than Sagittarius A star, but it's a thousand times bigger. And it turned out to be an easier one to image. So that was the big reveal in 2019 we have managed to get an image of a supermassive black hole. Everyone's been waiting for the last, since 2019, so for three more years, to see the image of Sagittarius A star, which was the assumption to begin with of what we were after. Wow. All of this is based on 2017 data. So when I first came here, the job was to help build up this network of radio telescopes that was going to do this observation. It uses a technique called very long baseline interferometry, which essentially means a number of independent radio telescope facilities, all acting as one big telescope the size of the planet. Wow. And the biggest one of all of these is a international facility, you know, supported by by large, large awards and, and large uh, directorates from, from uh, North America, from East Asia, and from Europe. Uh, that's called ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. And it's an array of 64 telescopes all working in concert themselves to act wow. like one big telescope. So when I say build up the array, I don't mean build the radio telescopes. I mean adapt the radio telescopes so that they can act as one big network. That was a daunting job. And the most daunting job was this ALMA array. And everything, it was a matter of installing new equipment and adding new software and adding new firmware wow. uh, and testing everything out and commissioning in it and doing all this without interfering with their very, very busy observing program and working with all the international politics, et cetera. That was the job I was asked to do when I oh first came gosh. to Haystack. So it's what we call phasing up Alma. That's a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> a lot of heavy lifting. That was my introduction to radio astronomy and kind of used all the skills that I had learned of, from the scientific and technical and engineering and instrument development and project management skills that could be brought to bear. And it was very successful. I was very proud yeah. of the outcome. And that's how I got involved with the Event Horizon Telescope, even though I'm and dredged up what I remember from astrophysics back from that master's program. And that was that was my involvement. And so did the whole team celebrate when this image was captured? What was the mood like among everybody that worked so hard to capture this image? <laughs> it was it was a very long time coming. Uh, it was very hard work. But when we started, as I said, that we were really the cradle are certainly one of the major cradles of this work at Haystack. By the time we got that first image, there was a science team of, of 300, 300 or so authors and an even larger team spread around the globe. 
and it became this huge family, this huge community. And yeah, there was a there was a a kind of global high know, five. Cheer, <laughs> high five. There you go. Global high five. You know, and and uh, of course with M87 it was pre-pandemic and a lot of this was in person. Yeah. And um, a lot of celebrating. But even within the team, the image there was a big reveal of the image because just the way it was very important. Uh, the data processing is extraordinarily challenging. And they had different teams working on it, and they didn't want any of the teams to be biased by wow. what they saw the others doing. And so there, even within the team, there was you know a reveal at one point. So um, extraordinarily exciting. Really exciting to celebrate such historic moments. I mean, and such accomplishment. It's amazing. And then to share it with all of humanity. It's so amazing, really. And of course, like I said, just yesterday, actually, we saw the first image of, let me get this right, you know, a speck of the universe that is 13 something billion miles light years away. And that just seems even hard to really wrap your mind around with the James mm -hmm. Webb Space Telescope accomplishment and just massive mirror technical capabilities things that probably took years like you said 15 plus 15 plus 15 to get to this uh, point in time and like what what could we expect from these types of reveals and this type of technological advancement and what do scientists and researchers hope to gain from exploring deep deep space like this well of course james webb is a wonderful breakthrough in technology. It's a wonderful facility that will have many uses, not just looking at these uh, most distant and ancient sources that help us understand how the universe evolves, but even for looking at, and that scale seemed to be nearby things like the atmospheres of planets in our solar system, anything that can be, that needs to be seen in the infrared and can't be seen well from the surface uh, of the earth, uh, James Webb will be a tremendous resource. Really, I'm not an expert in infrared astronomy, but you know, I, I would like to comment on these enormous projects. You know, James Webb has been has been consuming tremendous amount of attention and resources and, and dollars uh, within the NASA world for years now, mm -hmm. and it is extraordinary to see it come to fruition. It was well over budget and over schedule, which is typical for this type of project including moxie was of course we, we met schedule but we were we ran over budget because when you're building something that no one's ever built before you can guarantee you're going to run into trouble right right it's it's really the extraordinary case where everything goes swimmingly and that's just to be expected it attracted thousands of people involved in it and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in the science community and of course, therefore, captured the public imagination. And as it should, there will be fantastic pictures. But there are also lots of smaller projects that don't involve billions of dollars and that don't involve thousands of people that are comparably exciting. And, and let me mention a couple. I'd love that, yeah. That, that are, we're involved with at Haystack. One of the, the, the things you've heard a lot about James Webb is how it's going to reach back to the first 180 million years of the universe when the stars first turned on. And, and you know, that what a biblical idea that there was chaos in the universe and it was just all kind of this 
homogeneous or not so homogeneous kind of cold stuff. And then there was light and the stars turned on. Uh, and that's the way it happened. And we're still trying to understand the details of that. But one of the things that happened when those first stars turn on is that it ionizes hydrogen all through the universe. And, and the hydrogen starts emitting radio waves. They're emitted at, at a particular frequency, but that frequency is redshifted just like the light. So it's detected at very low. So it starts at 1440 megahertz. And the older it is, the lower the frequency at which it's detected. And for many years, for a long time, people have wanted to look for that signature of let's see what the hydrogen being excited when these same first stars turned on that, that James Webb is hoping to see, and maybe even a bit earlier. There's an experiment out of Haystack called EDGES, which has been championed by a fellow by the name of Alan Rogers, who would be a great interview. Uh, Alan is retired many years from MIT and still works here six days a week. That's awesome. You know, uh, well more than eight hours a day, pushing forward this experiment called EDGES. It's a single radio, not what you imagine as a telescope, because it's such low frequency. It looks like a, a drop leaf table, right, more than anything else, and was first deployed in Western Australia, and that's where a lot of the, the best data so far has come from. In Western Australia with a huge, what's called a ground plane, a, a, an electrically conducting carpet underneath it that's tens of meters on a side in this little dining room table in the middle of it collecting data. And there was a paper published, boy, probably five years ago now, the, declaring success of this very, very tiny project on small amounts of money that is seeing those same stars right, right. 180 million years after the Big Bang, seeing it by by the light of the hydrogen that's being that that is being ionized. Wow. And so far no one has yet done an independent confirmation of the experiment because it is it may be small, but it's very hard. And and uh, I can't just understate the enormous dedication and expertise from from Alan Rogers and colleagues at Arizona who worked on this for many years. And uh, we're still we're still refining it and pursuing it and doing field work. That's one experiment. And then another that brings much closer to home, much closer to home, these distant, incredibly distant, incredibly ancient events is simply looking at quasars, which are the brightest objects at the edge of the known universe that are, you know, not quite that ancient, but just about the oldest things we can see with normal radio telescopes. We have always looked to the stars as fixed points of reference for navigation, for example, and that's a good example here. But the more you magnify stars, the less they look like fixed point of reference. They move, they have structure, they have shape. And, and so if you really want to do very, very precise navigation, what's called geodesy, understanding the shape and movement of the Earth. You need the closest thing to a point source you can find, which, which are these distant quasars. And even hmm. then, you have to worry about the source structure. So there is a network of radio telescopes that is observing these different quasars, these distant ancient quasars, just as kind of a reference frame to figure out what's going on with the Earth itself. And one of the things you can see with this, it's not the main focus, but it's a fascinating story, 
one of the things you can see with this is the Earth actually slows down in its rotation and speeds up a little bit in its rotation from season to season and day to day. Wow. The whole Earth, and it's, you know, millisecond, it's not a, not a lot, it's a small amount, but the days are actually a little shorter or a little longer. And by a day, I mean one rotation of Sometimes the Sometimes my week feels like that, so now I know yeah, why. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes and we I run know out what? of minutes in a day, right? We wish we had a couple more. <laughs> The fascinating thing is what causes this. And what causes this is actually the wind blowing on the mountains. Wow. The winds blowing on the mountains slow down the earth or speed it up. And that's, of course, seasonal. That's amazing. And you can track the mean, the average winds, and you can track this measurement taken by looking at ancient stars at the end of the universe. And they they correlate. They agree perfectly. That's a beautiful thing to think of. Ancient, ancient, ancient galaxies that form these these quasars and winds blowing on the mountains and earth all tied together and all related and that's, that's uh, a geodesy program that uh, yeah we run at thanks for sharing that that's really both of those um like you said sort of unsung research projects and things that maybe don't reach the headlines but are just as important to the study of our world and and space and beyond right that's really that's fascinating right. so thank you so I have to ask, do you believe in aliens? And if so, what, is that, what does that look like in your mind? I struggle with the word believe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what believe means or what it means to believe in something. Does that mean you have knowledge of it? I don't know. I think it's the strictly logical assessment of this is that until we see another example, we have no way of knowing if we're unique in the universe. And that's one of the reasons there's so much energy and excitement and enthusiasm about finding other examples of life, let's say, on Mars. Mm-hmm. Because if you find a what's sometimes called a second genesis in one solar system, you know, that's a very good indication that life is everywhere. And then you may find a second genesis and realize that it's all one and it's just been cross-fertilization between planets, which is not crazy either. And that motivates this whole field of astrobiology is, can we prove that we're not alone? In terms of belief, suspending my analytical scientific assessment, well, sure, it's it's just does not make sense that with the you know billions of stars and solar systems and planets that we're the only ones out here. Will we ever find out? Will we ever know for sure? Doubtful. Okay. I do believe in physics, yeah. and yeah. it's all fun games, uh, good fun and games to talk about wormholes in space and warp drives. But no, I kind of believe in the limitation of the speed of light and um, think it's something we'll always be dreaming of and writing stories about. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. And what do you think, looking ahead, what would be some of the most interesting discoveries you think we might still see in, the, say, the next 25 years or so? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, I'd be a, if, I, if I had the talent to tell you that, I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll never know, I guess. There's always something around the corner right here in this amazing field. There's always something around the corner. I think the success... You know, in in looking narrowly in in the field of space science, I think the the LIGO results of oh my goodness, we can hear black holes colliding and hear wow. their death death cries 
was astonishing. The black hole image, of course, that we were involved in is astonishing. Maybe we will find evidence of past life on Mars. The focus of the Perseverance mission is to bring back samples to the laboratory where you can really bring to bear everything we can do in a scientific laboratory, what you can do on another planet scientifically in terms of instrumentation is like junior high school compared to what we can do in a real laboratory. So who knows, maybe evidence of life in another planet, but in a larger picture, I'd have to say that what's the biological sciences, we have the seeds of in the biological sciences today, as well as artificial intelligence, you know, those worlds that are getting closer and closer together, that truly is the stuff of science fiction. And, and I would be surprised if we didn't see astonishing things coming out of those two fields. Great. We look forward to seeing them for sure. And this has really been a fascinating chat and I know is going to inspire our listeners and be even to look more to the stars and be curious. And we here at MIT Talks, we'd love to wrap up our interview with some signature questions that we ask all of our guests. And so we're going to go go towards those now. So what is one book you think everyone should read? Well, I think everyone should read a different book and talk about them. <laughs> but I know that's not the answer you're looking for. And I think everyone should read Andy Weir's The Martian to understand what it is that Moxie does. That isn't the answer you're looking for either. I, I'm going to cheat a little bit and maybe suggest two. And, okay. and focusing on the context here, the theme of what inspires people to explore, which is one aspect of, of Moxie, and what inspires people to learn how things work, which we've talked about before. And maybe one is obvious and one is not so obvious. Alfred Lansing's Endurance. You know, I don't know a better book to get across the idea of just how strong this human drive is to explore and survive. Um, you know, just a, a, a brilliant and almost unbelievable story. On the other end, about science. You know, there's a book I read some years ago by, uh, and I think it hit the bestseller list subsequently, uh, Robin Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. What is it? Braiding Sweetgrass? Braiding Sweetgrass. Okay. And she is a botanist, of, mm. you know, Native American heritage. And it's simply a series of stories that in some ways seamlessly blends science and spirituality and blends an appreciation, again, a spiritual and aesthetic appreciation of the natural world with a scientific quest to understand what makes it that way. People often talk about the tension between science and religion and whatnot, mm -hmm. and I found that this book just ignored that question and said, how do they work together? How do we integrate Great. We look, I look forward to reading that one. That sounds like a great read. So please use one word to describe your past, your present, and your future. So three words, one for each past. Oh, present, one for future. each. Oh, mm -hmm. gosh. Past, present, and future. And I assume you mean professionally. Any, anything. You know, I'm going like to say professionally, okay. and I'm just going to give you one word, which is curiosity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I know it's, that's the wrong your mission. Past, your present, and your future. <laughs> Yeah, Absolutely. I'm on the perseverance mission, not the curiosity mission. But if I could have chosen a name, uh, that's that's the word. Great. And one should never stop. You said this earlier. One should just never stop being curious. 
And that's what makes it all fulfilling and satisfying and worthwhile. That's great. And last question here. Would you rather have a library full of books or a contact list full of names? That is a nasty choice. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you ever want to give up one from the other? But but all things said, people. Yeah. People. It's not... You can read all about it, and it's not worth it. This is why I said everyone should read a different book and talk about it. <laughs> it's the people are more important. The interactions are more important to me. Great. Well, thank you, Michael, so much. And this conversation and this interaction has been a true pleasure. I've loved hearing more about your journey and about the observatory. And I encourage all of our listeners to go check it out and, and to be inspired by this talk and find their own inspiration to reach for the stars. I really appreciate our chat today. And I know our listeners will love it. And I really appreciate what you're doing as well. And I constantly remind people that the reason for what we're doing is to a great extent, to communicate it to the rest of the world, to the rest of humanity. And people like you and your colleagues who help us do that really need to be celebrated. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another inspiring episode of MIT Talks. We would love to hear from you, our listeners. Engage with us at MIT Club of Boston's website or any of our social media channels. Please send us your ideas for future podcast guests or reach out to further the conversation with your awesome co-hosts. Thank you for listening to the MIT Talks.